The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With your measure, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples and explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been studying, like I said, this book of Mark, for the past three months. And if you didn't know, the Bible's made up of a lot of different books, um, but it's one story, it's got one narrative, one plot line, but it's made up of a lot of different books with a lot of different authors. And the reason we're studying this book of Mark, or the Gospel according to Mark, is because it's one of the earliest eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus. Mark is the direct eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' earliest disciples. And so it makes uh, for us, it's the best place to go to find a picture of the real Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did he teach? How did he live? Why do people, why do so many people across the world worship him? Um, Why does, you know, so many different opinions are out there on Jesus? Well, the best place to go to find out what, who Jesus really was and what he taught is one of the best places is the book of Mark. So, We are slowly working our way through this book, verse by verse, on a quest to discover the real Jesus. And what we have realized in the first four chapters is that all of us have a picture or a version of Jesus in our minds. But that version of Jesus, that picture of Jesus, that image of Jesus that's in our mind, that Jesus of our minds, isn't like the real thing. Most of us have been discovering week after week that the Jesus, the real Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is much different than the Jesus that we have in our heads. Most of us have kind of patched together some pieces of Jesus, some things we've heard from our parents, some things we've heard maybe on the news or on CNN or we watch this show on the History Channel or we remember this Bible story from a long time ago and then we kind of pick up everything we learned from Facebook and we kind of put it together as a patchwork Jesus in our mind. 
And we think, man, I think I know who Jesus is. I think I got a pretty good handle on him. And we kind of put him in a, on a shelf and somewhere in our mind. And we just say, okay, that's, where, that's Jesus. But what we've been learning and studying week after week and coming to grips with the Jesus of our mind is really far different than the Jesus we're discovering from the gospel of Mark. Week after week, people meet me at the doors and they've been coming up and they said, I had no idea Jesus did that. Or I had no idea Jesus said that or taught that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is happening week after week is we're coming to know the real Jesus in a greater way. We're getting a clearer picture of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught. And we're doing this because the reality is only the real Jesus, who he is in himself, only the real Jesus has real power to change our lives, to shape our lives correctly, to point us in the right direction. Only the real Jesus, a figment of our imagination, a patchwork Jesus of our mind has no real power because ultimately it's just a figment of our imagination. And what we're discovering week after week is when people meet Jesus, everyone who met Jesus was radically changed by him for the good, for the better, or for the worse. Some people were repulsed by him. They rejected him. They pushed away and their hearts were hardened. Now, this full, this full, this church is full of both types of people this morning, all right? We, there's all kinds of people in this room. There's those who've embraced Jesus. They've met the real Jesus and their lives have been radically changed by him. There's those who are kind of discovering. We're on the outside and we're kind of checking him out. Well, who is he? What's he teach? What would my life look like if I follow Jesus? And there's even some people here who have rejected Jesus and pushed away from Jesus and we don't like Jesus, but we're here because mama wanted us to be here, right? There's some of us. Our aunt invited us. Our brother invited us. And we're here because there's a wonderful ham waiting for us after this if we sit through this service, right? That's all right. If you're visiting with us today, we, we want to invite you back next week to come back and hear more because honestly, we have a long way to go. We are working our way through this book. We're going to learn a lot about Jesus. We'll be studying the life and work of Jesus for the next year. And if you don't believe, that's okay. Come back, hear more so that you have enough information, you've got the proper information, you've got all the information that you need to really make a decision about who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught. Don't make a decision off of this idea of Jesus in your mind. Come back, get all the information you need so you can process that, so you can have the, good, the right information to be able to make those good decisions. We want to say, hey, if you're a skeptic, you're welcome here. If you're a doubter, you're welcome here. Our, our faith is big enough for skeptics. Our faith is big enough for doubters. So this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Like I said, it's not an Easter sermon, but in a sense, every sermon is an Easter sermon if you're in a Christian church. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. You already heard the reading of the word. It's a chapter that's interesting. It's full of Jesus' parables. And a parable is basically a short story with a meaning, okay? It's like an extended allegory or extended illustration. It's meant to teach us something about Jesus or his kingdom, and what we, what's interesting is you come to find out when Jesus is teaching these parables, uh, if you heard those parables and you didn't get it, that's, that's fine because very few people understood Jesus' parables because Jesus' parables are like slow-release capsules, okay? They're like time bombs. They're, they're implanted in us and they're not meant to go off until the resurrection. No one understood the parables of Jesus until post-resurrection. When he came back and they're like, Oh, 
Now I get it. But in the moment here, we're going to discover as we keep going, Jesus' own disciples, his own family thought he was crazy. They didn't understand him. All right? They didn't understand all the stories. So it's going to be that way for us too. But we are on the other side of Easter, on the other side of resurrection. So we get to see some of the meaning behind these parables. And today we're going to look at three really short vignettes. There are three short parables that are meant to help us grasp who Jesus is and what is his kingdom like. First, Jesus says in his first little parable, he says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Now, all the people that were raised in church and had the Sunday school background, right? You can hear this, hide it under a bushel, right? Oh, right? Remember those things, right? I'm going to let it shine. Well, it's not talking about letting your little light shine. That's not what the Bible is really talking about here, all right? This is how Jesus loved to teach, He loved to use these little short visualizations. He says, who brings in a lamp only to throw a cover over it, under blanket under it, right? Nobody does that. Who brings in a lamp and hides it under the bed? That's foolish, right? Well, what Jesus is saying isn't, we've all got these little lights and we need to let our little lights shine. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light and I didn't come to stay hidden forever. 30 years, Jesus lived in obscurity. He was poor, right? He was in the boondocks. Nobody really knew him. I mean, his family and friends, but nobody recognized him. And he says, I am the light of the world that comes. And I didn't come in to stay hidden. I come to give my light to the world. I came to enlighten people. I came to bring illumination to this world. He is the light that left heaven, the land of all light, and entered into the dark place, this world that we live in. Just turn on the news. If you're in doubt about we live in a dark world, just turn on the news. Right? It takes 30 seconds to realize there's something wrong with our world today. Jesus says, I'm the light who's come into this world, and I didn't come in to remain hidden. And Jesus says over and over in this chapter, To the one who has ears, let him hear. He's saying, listen to me. Understand what I'm trying to tell you. And if you understand, if you listen, here's the the weirdness of the kingdom, the paradox of Jesus' teaching. If you listen, he'll give you more understanding. If you pay attention, he'll give you more understanding. But if you dismiss him and go, I think I got him figured out, he's going to actually take the knowledge that you have. Less, you'll have less and less understanding. Now, this is fascinating because If you think about a lamp or a light, a lamp works in two ways. First, when a lamp gets lit, you hit the light in your bedroom. It's dark. You hit the light. Boom. You see it's light, right? You turn the light on. You see it's light. Jesus says, I'm like that light. I'm like that lamp. Look to me. I am the light of the world. But then a lamp works in another way too. When you flip that light on, you are able to see everything else in the room through its light. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Through me, you will now be able to see the world in a different way. You will be able to see things in your life in a new and different way. I'm not only the light that you look to, I'm the light that enlightens the world, that allows you to see other things in the world in a new way. If you walk into this dark room, You see the light, but you also see everything else in the room. If the room is like 
my kid's room most of the time, right? You flip that light on and you see a billion Lego pieces on the floor, right? You see dirty clothes and a mismade bed and toothpaste somehow on the bed and, right? You see things in weird places. The light, I don't just come in and see the light. The light enables me to see other things that's going on in this dark room or what was dark. Jesus is saying when he comes into your life, when you encounter him as the light of the world, he does the same things in our lives. Boom, the light comes on and all of a sudden we see things we couldn't see before. Dark corners of our heart become visible. Play, like, you know, you know the corners. Like if, you have, if you're hosting Easter at your house today, right? You never look at the corners of your house until right before you got to host people. And then all of a sudden you look up and there's, how did that cobweb get there? People have been coming over to my house for months. There's cobwebs up there. There's Cheerios in the corner. How did those get there? Little dust bunnies? Right, we don't even notice that until we're having people over. Jesus is the light that enlightens us, that sees into even the dark corners of our life. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would he turn the light on and allow us to see the good things in our life in a different way? Because he does enlighten us to see the joy and the happiness and the, and the goodness in our world. But he also allows us to see the mess in our world in a different way. He allows us to see the mess in our hearts and in our lives in a different way. Why would he do that? Well, let's look at the second parable. Jesus says this, the kingdom is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. He goes to bed day after day, and then the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. It just happens. The seed goes in the ground, and then after a season of time, a blade of green pops up, then the stalk, then the full grain, and now it's time to be harvested. Well, first off, what kind of harvest do we get? This is not a hard question, right? Whatever seed that we use to sow, that's what's going to grow, right? The guy who sowed the seed, he doesn't understand how it happens. All he does is he sows the seed, he puts it in the ground, he goes to bed, he gets up, he looks, nothing, goes to bed, gets up and looks, nothing, and then eventually something starts growing. But if he sows wheat, wheat's going to be growing, right? If he sows corn, corn's going to be growing. And Jesus here isn't teaching us about agriculture, right? He's talking about the fruit of our lives. What is the harvest of your life right now? What kind of things are growing? What kind of things are growing in your heart? What kind of things are growing in your life? What kind of harvest are you getting? Is it love for God and love for others and you're just growing and growing and growing and humility and happiness and joy and love for God and love for your neighbor or is it something darker? Do you see selfishness and self-centeredness? Do you see envy? Do you see greed? Do you see hate? Do you see bitterness? Jesus is saying here, when he turns on the light, he turns on the light for us. He is the light for us. He's the sun that shines out so that we can see what's growing in our life. What kind of harvest are we getting? Why? Because he wants to change the seed. He wants to give us a different type of seed in our life that we can plant in our soul, in our hearts, and it can grow to a new harvest. What do I mean by that? In this chapter, Jesus uses three different 
agricultural metaphors or parables. All three of them have to do with seeds and what they produce. Jesus is saying, if you understand the seeds that are being sown in your life, you will then understand the harvests. Now listen, if you don't like the harvests, right? If you don't like the corn, let's just use this, corn that's being produced, you could go out and you could pull all the corn off of your, the stalks. And you could go to the store and you could buy beans. And you could come out and you could tape the beans to the corn stalk. You could change the fruit, right? But that's a mechanical change that doesn't last, right? That's a surface change that doesn't last. Jesus is saying, if you want to change the shape of your life, the direction of your life, the course of your life, the fruit of your life, you have to get deeper. You have to change the seed that you're using. But can I ask you, how? How do we change? I think this is a big question in our society today. If you had to take a self-assessment of your life, and if you could do that with any amount of clarity, I think there's more than likely some things in your life right now that you would say, I need to change this. This isn't attractive. This isn't loving. This isn't kind. And if you have a hard time seeing that, just turn to the person next to you and ask for their opinion. Right? Because I'm sure they're going to go, I got, I got one or two. We can talk about it at lunch. Right? <clears throat> and what we're saying here is when you meet the real Jesus, as the light of the world, his light enables you to see some of those things that we need to change. And that's not always a pretty picture. Right? That's not always fun for us to see the things in our heart that we need to change. But what Jesus is saying is change is possible. We do need to change. But let me show you how to change. And it's not like... The world tells us how to change, and it's not like religion tells us how to change. Jesus has a different way to change us. Now, what does our culture say about change? The things in our life that we should change, what does our culture say? Now, most of the time, our culture's answer really is that you need more self-esteem. I read an article in the New York Times this week that said our current cultural mantra is you be you. That's our cultural mantra. It's the common expression. We all heard it. Maybe our moms used to tell us, just be yourself. But it's been a little modernized and updated through hip-hop culture. Now it's just you be you. You be you. I'll be me. Now what's that saying? That's saying the answer to your problems in life is to just double down on you. I love me some me. Right? Don't try to change. Just be you. Now, put that in the parable of Jesus here. One day you wake up and you find that something is growing in your life that you don't like. You're impatient. You're trying to control every relationship around you. You're always worried what people are thinking about you. What do they think about that Facebook post I put up there? What do they think about my outfit? What do they think about this? And our culture's answer is when you look up, you wake up and you see this harvest that's growing, the self-centeredness that you kind of see, you're always aware of yourself. Our, our culture's answer is don't worry about it, you be you. Don't worry about it, you be you. And as I was writing this out this week, it was funny, I was, I was writing this out I received an email, I hate to, I'm kind of ashamed of this. I received an email from Pinterest, okay? And it had the week's most, don't judge me, don't judge me. It had the week's most 
popular pins, right? And this was the top one. Go ahead and put it up on the slide. Said this, note to self, you got to do this for you. This is for you. Mm-hmm. This isn't about anybody. Live for you. Honor you. Never lose sight of that. Now, this is the week's most top pin. I hope it wasn't on your, I didn't look at your Facebook profile. So if you posted it, I don't know about it. Okay, I promise. It was an email I got. Can I just say honestly that this is the religion of our young people in our society today? You be you and don't let anyone tell you any different. Now let me ask you a question. Do we really believe this, first off? Let me just do a first hypothetical. What if your friend, she just being her, what if she really hurts you? What if she lies about you? What if she betrays you? Do you look at her and go, oh, honey, you be you. I'll be me. I'll tell you what me does. No, right? (laughs) Now, I feel like you be you only works when it's me. Right? I don't want anybody else to be them. Now, let me play it out a little bit farther. But I think we live this life. You be you, right? Let me ask you another question. What if you being you isn't good? I see little boy Adolf Hitler running through the yard. He finds a boy smaller than him and he punches him in the mouth. And when we look at little boy Adolf and we say, you be you, Adolf. You be you. We got to exaggerate things sometimes to make a point. But doesn't everything in us, something deep in our humanity, look at this and say, um, no. How about you don't be you, Adolf? How about you change, Adolf? Maybe the reason we have so many people in our world today doing horrible things is because we're believing a religion of you be you, which basically excuses away anything in us that is wrong or any mess that needs to be changed. Maybe we should stop taking our religious advice. This you be you is religious advice. It's the worship of the self. It's narcissism. Maybe we should ignore the advice of our culture and our peers. And maybe we should look back in time and, and maybe read some dead dudes. Okay, that's kind of what I like to do. Some old dead dudes. Listen to this St. Augustine, what he said. He said this, and narcissism is basically pride. If you don't know the Greek myth of narcissists, you should really, uh, you should really study it. Um, if you ever heard, you've heard the term selfie, right? Well, they say selfie because narcissy is too hard to say, but... <laughs> Basically, what a selfie is, narcissist was a Greek god who fell in love with his own reflection in a mirror. He looked down and said, ooh. He fell in love with his own reflection, and that's where he died, staring at a selfie. Okay? That's what it means to be narcissist, to be really into some you. Right? Now, this is what Augustine said. St. Augustine said this, pride, narcissism, you be you, pride is the mother of, of all sins. What's he saying? Pride, narcissism, UBU is actually pregnant in itself. It's pregnant with every other type of sin. Pride is the source. Pride is the root. Pride is the mother of all sin. 
little Johnny wants to take something that isn't his, you be you, Johnny. Who's to tell him any different? Now, what does that look like? If you've followed the news in the past couple of years, Bernie Madoff, the guy who conned people out of billions of dollars through the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. What do we say to Bernie? Bernie's just being Bernie. Bernie be Bernie. But you say, Justin, hold on. Now, Adolf, Bernie Madoff, these are bad apples. These are just bad apples. They're not, you know, there's, there's bad people out there, but most people, you know, those bad people shouldn't follow the UBU, but people like me, we should follow UBU because we're pretty much good, good folks. Now, listen, I want to ask you, let's just follow that line of thinking just a little bit. What's the line between a little bit of selfishness a little bit of narcissism, a little bit of UBU. And where's the line where I go from okay to bad apple? Where's that line? Think of selfishness like a seed. If left unchecked, that seed will grow into a plant so large that it can destroy everything else in our life. In fact, if you want to think of heaven and hell... You can think of heaven and hell in the same way. Let me, think, let me, let me point this out. If I, if I have a rifle and I'm shooting at a target in the back of the room here or 100 yards down the way, if I'm one-eighth, one-eighth of an inch off right here, by the time it hits the target, depends on how far out it is, it's miles off, it could be miles off course. And what we're saying is selfishness, it varies in degree, not kind. And what happens is when I'm a little bit off here, by the time I get out there, I'm way off. And the selfish seed, as it continues to grow in us, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And C.S. Lewis has even said that heaven, all it is, is the seed that God has planted in us growing into fruition. So our lives get more and more and more like heaven that when we die and, and we, we embrace Christ by faith and we get heaven, heaven is just an extension of what's already been happening in our soul. But so is hell. That hell is the selfishness in our heart growing up into a plant that goes on to eternity. It's us continually getting more and more and more selfish, more and more into us, staring into our own reflection, enjoying it more and more and more. It's narcissism with no end. It's selfishness multiplied by infinity. See, Bernie Madoff was a cute little kid once, but the weeds of his selfishness grew unchecked. When St. Augustine says pride is pregnant with all other sins, he's saying that as our self-centeredness continues to grow and we think more and more and more about ourself, we think more and more about our beauty and our happiness and our career and our family and our money, the fruit of every other sin begins to appear. Envy, jealousy, greed, racism, classism. That all sin at its root is self-centeredness and pride. In a child, that looks like a temper tantrum in Walmart over a sucker. In a teenager, it looks like the boy who uses girls to gratify himself sexually and then brags about it to his friends. In college, it's cheating to get good grades. In young adulthood, it's doing and saying whatever it takes to get ahead and advance in your career. It's the seed of selfishness continuing to grow and grow and grow. And parents, if you appeal to that self-centeredness, you just double down on it. If you appeal to it to parent, you just double down on their self-centeredness. Sin and self-centeredness varies in degree, not kind. 
When we start out, we're one degree off the mark, but by the time we get out there into adulthood, we're miles off the mark. Another way to say it is the seeds of narcissism continue to grow in a person's life. It will make them the most unhappy person on the planet. No matter how many likes they get on Facebook or Instagram, no matter how many promotions they get or degrees behind their name, they'll be miserable. Jesus says, if you want to change the fruit, you got to change the seed. You got to go deeper and you need a seed transplant. And what he says in Mark chapter one, we've read it already many times. Jesus says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, it's turn, and believe in the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus has new seed. He can clear your life of your self-centeredness and he can plant new seed in its place. Seed that produces this harvest. Listen to this harvest. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. How would you like to wake up in the morning to discover those things growing inside of you? Honestly, patience? I need some of that. This is the key to the good life having the right seed sown and the seed growing, and we don't even know it's growing, but it's growing and we're becoming a different person and we can't even see that sometimes. Sometimes other people have to tell us about it. This is what God is doing. This is how he's at work in us. This is what Jesus is offering us today. Hear me. But listen, so many people, when I say that, they think what I'm actually saying is, listen, the culture says you be you. Many people come to the church and they think I'm saying this, act like Jesus. I want to hear that. Culture says, you be you. You come to the church, you think the church is saying, you be Jesus. You get your act together. You live like Jesus did. You love like Jesus did. You be as welcoming and as kind and forgiving and as gracious as Jesus did. You be me. But Jesus, we think Jesus is saying that. Most people think Christianity is about acting like Jesus. And, when they, and most of the time what they think when they say that is that means stop having fun. Stop being you. Start acting more and more like Jesus. And if you act more and more like Jesus, someday you'll cross the line. You'll fall into this, you'll cross the line of bad person to good person. And then Jesus and God will look down at you and go, wow, you've cleaned up your act. You look pretty doggone good. You've crossed the line into morality, into goodness, and now you can be accepted and you can go to heaven when you die. That is not the message of Jesus. Please hear me. That is, Jesus' message was the exact opposite of that. Listen, he doesn't say, you be me. Jesus came to this earth to be us. Jesus left the perfection of heaven to live a perfect life on this earth 2,000 years ago to feel what you feel, to walk in your shoes, but unlike you. Jesus never made a mess of things. He never sinned. He was betrayed, but never retaliated. He never lied or selfishly used someone for his own purposes. Jesus came to earth as a perfect human being. He loved God, 
He loved others perfectly, but that didn't puff him up. He wasn't proud. He was humble. And ultimately what he did in his humility was he exchanged places with us. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus, though he had never sinned against God, he took our place, the the sacrifice that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve for sinning against God. Jesus took that on the cross and died in our place. Now listen, people who think that Christianity is about acting like Jesus, they do two things. Or they can do two things. Number one, if you think that Christianity is about acting like Jesus, number one, if you're the type of person who who realizes that you can never measure up, you just can never, you know, read your Bible enough, you can never pray enough, you can never stop doing whatever it is that you're trying to stop doing, you can never change, you're never good enough, you just feel that, you really feel the weight of that. Well, what, obviously what happens is either you live your life feeling like a constant failure or you leave the church. You leave the church and you kind of have this little bit of Jesus in your mind, but you don't have a relationship with him, you don't know him, you don't know the beauty of him, you don't know who he really is. There's that. Or, or the second response. And the second response for those who think Christianity is about acting like Jesus These are the people, I'm just going to say it, more like me. These are the people who, who actually somehow like the word discipline. These are people who like to be seen some rules. If you give me some rules, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. Give me some goals, I'm going to go after it. What happens to people who start trying, okay, act like Jesus. I think I can do that kind of. We go after it. We start performing. We start kind of getting more, maybe more moral. We stop maybe using certain words and maybe watching certain things. We're trying to get our act together a little bit. But you know what happens? Ultimately, for those of us who um, are workers, hard workers and kind of performers, and, and we kind of think that we kind of can act like Jesus in some ways, we actually ultimately start becoming as self-centered and as proud and as egotistical as the UBU crowd. What happens to people who start thinking they look a whole lot like Jesus? What happens to people who actually become convinced of their own goodness? Now, I wanted to explain this to you, but I couldn't find a better explanation. So I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to read from another book. Not a book that's equal with scripture, nothing like that. It's a book from a lady named Flannery O'Connor. And she's a famous novelist who went to the University of Iowa. She wrote one of the greatest depictions I've ever heard of a person who's convinced of their own goodness, who's kind of fell in love with their own righteousness. It's a short story called Revelation. I, you can get her complete works. I would, I would encourage you to do it because uh, Flannery O'Connor, I quoted her last week. She's the one who said, um, it takes every word of a story to tell you what the story meant. You can't just give a synopsis. So I'm gonna break her rule and I'm gonna try to quote from her a little bit and give you a picture of it. Uh, it's probably not, not gonna go well, but I'm gonna try. I'm gonna read some, I'm gonna read a lot. I'm gonna read some quotes because I want you to feel this of what's going on here. Now, this story is about a lady named Mrs. Turpin, okay? It was written in the 40s. 
<clears throat> and Mrs. Turpin has a revelation. The story begins in a waiting room. Now listen, if you know anything about waiting rooms, waiting rooms are a lot like Walmart, right? All types of people are in there and you don't get to choose who you sit next to, okay? Mrs. Turpin walks into this waiting room and immediately she starts judging people, okay? She's convinced in her own goodness. She's a moral, upstanding person. She thinks she's a, she's a Christian. She walks in. She starts judging people immediately, but she does it in the most decent and normal way, okay? She doesn't verbalize it. It's in the story, so she's thinking it most of the time. She walks in, and all the seats are taken except for one, and she, let me just read it, okay? Here we go. I'm going to have to, I can't, I can't do it. Let me just, you got you to pick up some nuance here. I'm going to help you. You got to pick up some nuance. There was one vacant chair and a place on the sofa occupied by a blonde child in a dirty blue romper who should have been told to move over and make room for the lady. Who should have been told. You, you've been there, right? He was five or six, but Mrs. Turpin saw at once that no one was going to tell him to move over. He was slumped down in the seat, his arms idle at his side, his eyes idle on his head, his nose ran unchecked. Okay, moms, you walk in and you see the child who you know, that mama doesn't know what she's doing. Look at that baby. He hasn't been changed in a week, right? This, so you see just a little bit, of, this is called, just a little bit of pride, just a little bit. She's, she's measuring people up when she walks in. Then her, I'm, I'm skipping around, her gaze settled agreeably on a well-dressed gray-haired lady whose eyes met her, a woman much like herself, whose eyes met her and whose expression said, if that child belonged to me, he would have some manners and move over. There's plenty of room for you and, you and him too. So you see, she scans the room. She sees a child snot-nosed, but then she sees a lady well-dressed like her. Their eyes meet. They don't say a word, but they know. She's found a kindred spirit, right? Then she looks around the room. She could not understand why a doctor with as, with, with as much money as they made, charging $5 a day to just stick their head in the hospital door and look at you, couldn't afford a decent-sized waiting room. This one was hardly bigger than a garage. The table was cluttered with limp-looking magazines, and at one end of it, there was a big green glass ashtray full of cigarette butts and cotton wads with little blood spots on them. If she had anything to do with the running of the place, that would be emptied every so often. Next to her was a fat girl of 18 or 19 scowling into a thick blue book which Mrs. Turpin saw was entitled Human Development. The poor girl's face was blue with acne and Mrs. Turpin thought how pitiful it was to have a face like that at that age. She gave the girl a friendly smile but the girl only scowled the harder. Mrs. Turpin herself was fat but she had always had good skin. And though she was 47 years old, there was not a wrinkle in her face except around her eyes from laughing too much. Next to the ugly girl was the child still in exactly the same position, and next to him was a thin, leathery old woman in a cotton print dress. She and Claude had three sacks of chicken feet in their pump house that was exactly the same print. She had seen from the first that the child belonged with the old woman. She could tell by the way they sat, kind of vacant and white trashy, as if they'd sit there forever until doomsday if nobody called and told them to get up. The gospel hymn was playing over the loudspeaker. When I looked up and he looked down, and Mrs. Turpin, who knew it, 
supply the last line mentally. And one of these days, I know I'll wear a crown. Sometimes at night, when she couldn't go to sleep, Mrs. Turpin would occupy herself with the question of who she would have chosen to be if she couldn't have been herself. If Jesus had said to her before he made her, there's only two places for you. You can either be, and I'm going to, this is in the 40s, you can either be a black person or white trash. What would you have said? Please, Jesus, please, she would have said, just let me wait until there's another place available. And he would have said, nope, you got to go right now. And I only got two places for you. Make up your mind. She would have wiggled and squirmed and begged and pleaded, but it would have been no use. And finally, she would have said, all right, make me a black person then, but that don't mean a trashy one. And he would have made her a neat, clean, respectable, respectable Negro woman herself, but black. Sometime, Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom were most colored people. On the bottom of the heap, but right above them, or not, oh wait, I'm sorry, on the bottom of the heap were most colored, not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. Then next to them, not above, just away from, were the white trash. Then above them were the homeowners, and above them the home and landowners to which she and Claude belonged. Above she and Claude were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and more land. Then she had a thought. What if Jesus had said, all right, you can be white trash or a black person or ugly? Mrs. Turpin felt an awful pity for the girl, though she thought it it was one thing to be ugly and another to act ugly. Then they start this conversation and the white, who she deems the white trash woman says something like this. One thing I don't want, the white trash woman said, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand. Hogs. Nasty, stinking things, a grunting and a rooting all over the place. Mrs. Turpin was a farmer who owned hogs. Mrs. Turpin gave her the, me- the merest edge of her attention. Our hogs are not dirty and they don't stink, she said. They're cleaner than some children I've seen. Their feet never touch the ground. We have a pig parlor. That's where you raise them on concrete, she explained to the pleasant lady. And Claude scoots them down with the hose every afternoon, washes off the floor. Cleaner by far than that child right there, she thought. Poor nasty little thing. He had not moved except put the thumb of his dirty hand into his mouth. The woman turned her face away from Mrs. Turpin. I know I wouldn't scoot down no hog with a hose. You wouldn't... You wouldn't have no hog to scoot down, Mrs. Turpin thought to herself. Mrs. Turpin looked to the lady that was a lot like her. The look that Mrs. Turpin and the pleasant lady exchanged indicated that they both understood that you had to have certain things before you could know certain things. This is, she's going on in her head and this is what she's thinking about herself. Her philosophy, to to help anybody out that needed it was her philosophy of life. She never spared herself when she found somebody in need, whether they were white or black, trash or decent. And of all she had to be thankful for, she was most thankful that this was so. If Jesus had said, you can be high society and have all the money you want and be thin and svelte-like, but you can't be a good woman with it, she would have said, don't make me that then. Make me a good woman. It don't matter what else, how fat or how ugly or how poor, her heart rose. He had not made her black or white trash or ugly. He had made her herself and given her a little of everything. 
Jesus, thank you, she said. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Whenever she counted her blessings, she felt as buoyant as if she weighed 125 pounds instead of 180. The white trash lady says, look like I can't get nothing down her kid and her husband except I can't get nothing down these two but Coca-Cola and candy. That's all you try to get down on, Mrs. Turpin said to herself. Too lazy to light a fire. There was nothing you could tell her about people like them that she didn't know already. And it was not just that they didn't have anything, because if you gave them anything, in two weeks, it'd be all broken or filthy, and they'd have it chopped up for firewood. She knew all this by her own experience. Here she's talking about herself. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said, with great feeling, it's grateful. When I think of all the people I could have been besides myself, and what all I got, a little of everything, and a good disposition besides, I feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making, the way, making life the way it is. It could have been different. Now, this is the way of religion. That's a little, might be a little obnoxious, but I hope we resonated at least a little bit with some of those ways she judges and characterizes and classifies people and and everybody. White trash person, a black person, she's elevating, she's counting, where, where do I stand in society? This is the way of religion. It creates people who are incredibly self-righteous. They might look good. They might look like good, respectable people. They might do good things, but inside they feel incredibly superior to people who are different from them. This is not the way of Jesus. This is the way of religion. The way of Jesus is much different. Jesus came to destroy this philosophy, to destroy this mindset, to destroy religion. Religion says do these good things and God will bless you. You'll be a good person, and God will bless you. Pray these prayers, read these books, say these mantras, live this way, and God will bless you. Jesus came not bringing good advice, but bringing good news. The gospel is different. Every other religion in the world can be boiled down to good advice. This is the good advice on how to get the gods on your team. But the gospel, Jesus didn't come bringing good advice on how to get God on your team. He came declaring good news, the gospel, that God became a man in Jesus and lived for us and died for us, was resurrected for us so that we could know God and learn from him and be in his kingdom. Every other religion says do, 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 and your list is never done. Christianity says done. Jesus on the cross said it is finished. But so many people come into a church and they miss the gospel. They miss the good news. And they try to change it into good advice. And what happens is we become Mrs. Turpin. We become. We try to use Christianity like other religions as a way for us to feel better about ourselves. A way for us to feel better than others. And that... We totally misunderstand grace. We totally miss grace. We don't need grace. But sometimes, and I pray it's like this today, God sends people into our life. He shines a light in our life to expose us to grace, to shock us into grace. 
so that we can see the difference between the gospel and religion. Religion, as you do better, you feel superior. The gospel is different, but it takes something shocking to make that happen. Now, in this waiting room, the pimply-faced, blue-faced girl, her name is Mary Grace, okay? And Mary Grace has been sitting there this whole time listening to the self-righteous, pompous, and not even listening, because most of the things were going on in her head. She could feel it. She could feel Mrs. Turpin judging her, Mrs. Turpin feeling better than everyone in the room and sizing everyone up. And Mary Grace, 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 Mary Grace has had enough. When Mrs. Turpin said that one thing, I just thank Jesus. I love me some me. I thank Jesus. He could have made me so many different people. I could have been born on a different continent. I could have had a different skin color. I could have been a different class of people. I thank Jesus that he made me me. This is what happens. Little Mary was sitting there reading her book, Human Development. Oh, and Mrs. I'm going to start with Mrs. Turpin. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus, she cried aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. (laughs) It struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table toward her, howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. She heard the mother cry out and cloud shout, whoa. There was an instant when she was certain that she was about to be in an earthquake. This commotion. Mary Grace attacks her. The girl's eyes are rolling in her head and they stop and they focus on Mrs. Turpin. They seemed a much lighter blue than before as if a door that had been tightly closed behind them was now open to admit light and air. Mrs. Turpin said, what you got to say to me? She asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting, waiting as for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. The white trash woman said, that there girl's going to be a lunatic, ain't she? Yep, she's going to be a lunatic. Poe critter, the old woman said. I thank God I ain't a lunatic. You see that? Remember Mrs. Turpin? I thank God I'm not black or white trash. White trash woman, she's a lunatic, huh? Well, I thank God I ain't a lunatic. Doing the same thing. Mrs. Turpin goes home and she's trying to sleep it off. She can't get this out of her mind. She's arguing with herself. I am not, she said tearfully, a warthog from hell. But the denial had no force. She had been singled out for the message. Though there was trash in the room to whom it might justly have applied. The full force of this fact struck her only now. There was a woman there who was neglecting her own child, but she had been overlooked. The message had been given to Ruby Turpin, a respectable, hardworking, church-going woman. The tears dried. Her eyes began to burn instead with wrath. Then she's home. She's feeding and watering the pigs in the parlor. She's spraying them down with a hose. And she starts talking to God. She starts meditating on this revelation that has happened. This is what she says to God. What do you send me a message like that for? She said in a low, fierce voice, barely above a whisper. 
but with the force of a shout in its concentrated fury. How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? Her free fist was knotted and with the other she gripped the hose blindly. Why me, she rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to and break my back to the bone every day working. And what I do for the church? If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. You could have made me trash. If trash is what you wanted, why didn't you make me trash? She shook her fist with the hose in it. I could quit working and I could take it easy and I could be filthy, she growled, lounge about the sidewalks all day drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. Go on, she yelled. Call me a hog. Call me a hog again from hell. Call me a warthog from hell. Put that bottom rail on top. There'll still be a top and a bottom. A garbled echo returned to her. A final surge of fury shook her and she roared, who do you think you are? This moment, it's dusk. There's a pur- she looks up into the sky and there's only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dust. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, upon this bridge, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and and bands of black folks in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs and bringing up the end of the profession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. This is her revelation. She's respectable. She's good, she's put together, she's moral, she does good things for the community. She's not like that white trash person. She's not like that person. She's a good person. And God sends her a message. And he says, you, through a crazy girl named Mary Grace, strikes her with grace that says, you old warthog from hell. What's he doing? This is the paradox of the gospel. I am worse than I ever thought possible. I'm a warthog from hell. But at the same time, I am more loved and accepted in Jesus than I've ever dared from ima- I've ever dared imagine. I am a warthog from hell, but Jesus came to love and save warthogs from hell, to send them, to bring them into his kingdom. This is the paradox of the kingdom of God. 
And if you notice, all of her good behavior was burned off in her resurrection, in the vision that she saw. That the good behavior doesn't merit her at all. That their bad behavior doesn't merit them at all. What merits us is the righteousness of Christ. We go to heaven. We experience new life. We get new seed. That seed is the gospel that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we can't live. And that what we do now is trust in that by faith because of his grace. And we put our faith in him and his righteousness is counted for ours. So we're not judged based on our works anymore, good works or bad works. We're judged based on the righteousness of Jesus. This is the paradox of the kingdom. Jesus says, this is the tiny seed. If you've ever held a, a mustard seed in your hand, I did some work one time for the guy who owns Boji's Mustard, and he used to give me, he gave me these jar of mustard seeds, and they, they're, they're absolutely tiny, barely bigger than a gnat in your hand. And from this little seed, Jesus says, will grow something mighty that birds can come and rest in. When you look at the mustard seed, it seems ridiculous. The apostle Paul says the gospel seems foolish. It's foolish that Christ came and somehow we can be made right with God because of the work of Jesus, that our sins can be washed clean because of the work of Jesus, that there is no so, you know, there is no standard in society anymore where we look down on others, that we're all level, we're all humbled, we're all warthogs from hell. Happy Easter. <laughs> Listen, the seeds of you be you grow up into more and more and more selfishness. The seeds of religion, you be Jesus, grow up into more and more self-righteousness and pride. But the seeds of the gospel that come in the humble package, the mustard seed package of Jesus Christ, he is that humble little seed, born in a tiny village to a poor couple, never traveled more than 100 miles from his own hometown, never owned a home, never married a woman, never wrote a book, never ran for public office. He lived in relationship with people on the margins of society, a man who was ultimately crucified and killed by the religious leaders of his day and placed in a borrowed tomb because he didn't even have enough money to pay for his own burial. I don't know if you can get a more humble beginning than that, but Jesus, this humble man, was also the son of God. And he is the seed that when you put him in the ground, it grows into a mighty plant. Now there's billions of people, billions of his followers across the world today. Two days ago, we do a lot of work in Kenya. I'm going over there in January. We're planting churches over there. We've got orphanage over there. We're drilling wells. Luckily, our stuff was 100 miles or so. Our people were 100 miles away from what happened. But you have these students you have this college and you have these Islamic extremists coming in and they're dividing people and they have guns and they say, are you a Christian? And if they say yes, pop, pop, they're dead. And if they're Muslim, they let them go. And this horrible atrocity took place. But I started thinking, you mean 149 teenagers said, I'm a Christian in the face of a rifle? What? 149 people looked down the barrel of a gun and said, I'm a Christian? They didn't play Muslim for an hour? 
This is the tiny mustard seed that grows into the mighty plant. This is the gospel that when it gets a hold of you, it changes you all the way through. Jesus is so humble that you might miss him. He's not like anyone else. But if you believe and if you bring him into your life, he brings with him resurrecting power. And that power produces life after its own kind. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. This is heaven in seed form in us that will grow into heaven if we let it. It's Easter. It's all about the resurrection. The resurrection was a historical event. I've preached on that past Easter's. Today I want you to know it's more than just a historical event. It's something that has power to change your life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, buried, crucified, but resurrected. And his gospel, this good news, is the seed that can change your very life from the inside out, if you believe it. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Would you help us believe your disciples even prayed, Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Help us believe. Help us believe it, Father. Would you come in with your sickle and would you cut down the seeds and the harvests of self-righteousness, of you be you, of narcissism that's growing in our heart, making our lives more and more unhappy because it's more and more about us? Would you plant new seed there, gospel seed? Remind us that it's not about us, and we can't act more like Jesus and be better people. That just makes us more and more self-righteous. But we can believe that we're a warthog from hell, but been saved by the grace of God and that you are changing us. You are changing us into better versions of ourselves through the gospel seed in our heart. Help us believe that today as we come to take the body of the Lord that's been broken for us in the bread and the blood of Christ that's been shed for us. Help us do this thoughtfully, thinking about your body that was beaten, whipped, a crown of thorns pressed upon it, a spear stabbed in your side, nails pierced through your wrists and feet, hung on a rugged Roman cross and your blood as it dripped down is what cleanses us from our sin, what frees us from our self-centeredness and our selfishness. Let us take that into ourselves and believe today. We thank you for this. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.